Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Father, we do come before the preaching of your word now. What a great blessing it is that we can have your word given to us in so many different ways. Lord, we hear it, we see it, and soon we will sense it, we will taste it, we will touch it. You surround us with so many great blessings, simple though they may be, simply water, bread, and wine, and word. Lord, you use these simple elements to strengthen our faith, to point us towards our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is alive today in heaven. We pray you would do this through this sermon now. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Actually, let's just begin at verse 16, and we'll go to the end. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. So this week as I was preparing for our evening service and I was reflecting on us that we got to have a baptism today, our evening service, in the next couple weeks we're going to go over uh, the question of how many persons are there in the Godhead? And as Christians, we believe there are three persons. We do not just simply a singular person God. I mean, he is one being in substance, but he is three persons. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we hear in this text today. And as I was reflecting on this, I thought, man, this is a great occasion But for a sermon on Matthew 28. But as I was thinking about it, something interesting came across my mind of what happens in this passage That here at the very outset of the Christian life is the name and the truth of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the most, if not the most, mysterious doctrines of the Christian faith is where we begin the Christian life. And so I'd like us to take a few moments to see what this means for us, and also that it has Interesting implications, important implications for evangelism. That's precisely what Jesus is calling his 11 disciples here to go do, to evangelize not the nations. And how should we think about this? Well, I'd like to point us in three different ways in this passage to what we'll see here. This is first, that we receive a new name. And then what is that name that we receive, secondly? And then lastly, the benefits and calling of this name. We receive a new name what that new name is, and the benefits and calling of this new name. So what does it mean to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? The first thing that you will notice here is that it's the word, the word for name is singular, because it goes immediately after that and lists three people or three persons more properly, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it doesn't say baptize them into the names of of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It says, baptize them into the name. And this is where we begin to understand our doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one being, one God, one essence, one substance, as our catechism says, 
of who God is. There are not three different gods. There is one singular God. Come back this evening and and worship in our evening service, and you'll hear more about this. But there is one singular God. But we also have three names given to this God. And we see throughout Scripture that there are three ways that God reveals himself, or there are three persons that God has revealed himself, three actors, if you will, in God, three individual persons who do things. And in this, we are receiving this three-tripart name applied to ourselves. And so what does it mean to be baptized into this name, this one name of three different names, if you will? Well, as we just heard a moment ago, it means that we're identified as God's covenant people. We heard Acts, 20, Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, that this covenant is for God's people, for those who believe in him, for their children, and all who are far off. Now, God is calling people not to come and join the nation of Israel, and now he is saying, no, this word of our gospel is going out to the nations, and call them to Belief and faith in Jesus Christ. And as we saw in baptism, we're explicitly marked out as those who belong to God. In some ways, if you were here yesterday for the wedding ceremony of the Holmans, you got to see something interesting about a wedding ceremony, is that a wife takes the name of her husband. It's like a wedding ceremony. But you're now in this, you're being incorporated into the family of God. You're being brought into his covenant as his child. And uh, the Old Testament testifies to what it means to take the Lord's name. Isaiah chapter 44 says, This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. That's what it means to have the name of God put upon you. It is identifying yourself with the Lord. It's the wife taking the name of her husband, identifying herself with her husband. She shares in all that belongs to him, and she comes under his protection and care. This is a covenant ceremony. In the old covenant, you would make a covenant usually, or most often, with somebody who was more powerful than you, with a greater king. But God is the king making a covenant with us of protecting, of caring, of sharing all of his goodness, his benefits with us. And he is applying his name, saying, you, are now, you now belong to me. We belong in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And that's what's happening as God sends, as Jesus sends his disciples out into the world to apply this sign, to baptize them, to make them belong to the covenant that God has made. So we receive a name. That's the purpose of it. It's to show that we belong to the Lord. And some of that might already be understood by you, but it's important to establish this. But then what is this name that we receive? What is the name? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And like I said at the very beginning, is that this is fascinating to me. And I hope it's fascinating to you that at the very beginning of the Christian life, is the most mysterious doctrine that we can conceive of. Three persons in one being, being applied to somebody at the very moment they are welcomed into the church. Jesus sets out the most profound mystery for his followers at the very beginning. 
And what's an implication of this is the importance of doctrine in the Christian life. If we begin with the doctrine of the Trinity, the most complex, the most mysterious doctrine, we must understand that we can't ignore doctrine as if it's not important for the Christian life. Too many Christians say, oh, we don't need to know doctrine. That's where people divide. That's where people fight. That's where people don't get along is when they talk about doctrine. And what Jesus is showing here is, no, doctrine begins at the very beginning of your Christian life. In fact, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is how you are identified. And it's essential as we grow as Christians to further and further understand this as best we can. So this is what is being called to as Christians. We are called to a doctrinal life as Christians who grow in our understanding. And as we see this, we grow in our understanding of how these names appear and what they do. There's two particular places I'd like to point us to of how we can begin to understand this name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That what's happening here is actually, in some ways, a mirror of creation. You say, how in the world do you get that, Pastor Nate? Well, I'll get there. But in the beginning, God, Genesis chapter 1, created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, the Spirit hovers over the waters. So we here have God, what we would refer to as the Father, creating all things, and the Spirit active in that work of creation, Father and Spirit. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle John tells us that also the Son was present there. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then all things were made through Him, through this Word. And without Him was not anything that was made. And without Him was not anything made that was made. So there, at the very beginning, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, active in creating and bringing into existence everything. So there we see the trifold God or trifold persons of God, they're active at creation. But then another event that I will point to as showing forth a little bit more of this creative act of God is what's happening at Jesus' baptism. Mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Just as the Spirit hovered over the waters at creation now, the Spirit is hovering over Jesus Christ like a bird. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Here we have the Son identified. We have the Spirit identified, and if there is a Son, this must be the voice of the Father speaking. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit active in this moment of Jesus Christ being identified with the people of God. That ultimately, He need to be identified with them truly in order for Him to bear their sins. He must be one of them. He must represent all of them. And baptism is an ultimately an act and a witness to both of those events. And it is those events coalescing into one. 
It is the act where God regenerates us. He brings us back to life from the dead. He is giving life where there is none. In creation, God created everything out of nothing. There was no life, but he brought life into existence where there was none. And this is what he is doing in the baptism of Christ, is that he is bringing life where there is none, ultimately where he would bring it on the cross, pointing towards his work on the cross and resurrection. And then just so you know, I'm not making this up. This is what our catechism says about baptism, of what it signifies. Or our confession of faith says that baptism is to be unto him or her a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting of Christ, and his regeneration. Regeneration is simply to give new life where there is none, to regenerate something, to bring it back to life. And so we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit operative in both creation, bringing life where there is none, and doing this out. All three of them at work, again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as Jesus is baptized. And it is a witness to what God does in giving life. And this is where it relates to evangelism. This is how we get to evangelism. Now, first off, when we talk about evangelism, our immediate feeling is we need to grow. It's like prayer. When somebody says, do you pray? And you obviously think, well, not as much as I ought to right? And they say, well, do you evangelize? Well, not as much as I ought to. Evangelism is one of those things that we all want to grow in, but it seems a bit of a struggle often. One pastor I read this week, he talked about confession of sin and reading of uh, Psalm 51, David's psalm that he wrote after his great sin with Bathsheba and then killing her husband. And he said this, one of the chief reasons we do not pray is because we don't know how to pray. It says, we do not instinctually know how to pray. We do not instinctually, instinctively know how to evangelize. We need to learn. And I believe that this tripart name of God given here, trifold name, is a, a model for us. It is actually a framework for us to learn how to evangelize. There's two ways to do this, or two things that I think are really helpful for us as we think about evangelism. There's what I say, and many other Reformed for throughout the generations have said, is the law and the gospel, and now also a Trinitarian framework. So you say, okay, what's my plan for evangelism? Here you go, the law and the gospel and the Trinity. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way about law and gospel. It says, how many things are necessary for you to know that this comfort that in this comfort, the comfort of being united to Jesus Christ, that in this comfort you may live and die happily. What do you need to know? Three things. The first, how great my sin and misery is. Second, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. And in this, we hear the law and the gospel and then the calling that flows from this gospel. The law, tell people that they're sinners. Not fun business. Tell people that they are miserable without God. Without God in the world, without God in your life, you are lost in your sins. And you have no hope. But then we tell them what God has done to save sinners. What God has done to rescue them and bring them into his kingdom. But as we tell this gospel, there's a Trinitarian framework that we can set 
what God the Father has done. He sent his Son to save sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We tell them what the Son then does. God the Father sent his Son to save us. What the, what the, what the Son himself then does. Being sent by the Father, he came as a man, like one of us, to live perfectly for all of us who did not live perfectly, who failed in every way to keep God's commands. And not only did he live the perfect life that we needed, he paid the penalty for all the sins that we've committed. And then he gives us his eternal life, his righteous life for our sake, giving us his resurrection life. And then we tell them about what the Holy Spirit does, what God the Spirit does, as then the Spirit comes into you as God applies all these benefits. He says, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but he died for you. And he applies all these benefits to you. He comes and dwells in you. The third person of the Trinity dwelling inside of you. He takes the forgiveness that Christ accomplished and he applies it to you. So now you are one known as forgiven by God. He gives you faith. So that you can know these benefits, believe in them, and trust in them, and rest in them. So that is this tripart name, the threefold name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that refers to each person of Him. And it is a calling for us as we evangelize, that we are to go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now the benefit and the calling. The benefit of this going into all the world is that the end of this passage, verse 20, teaching them all I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the great benefit of this calling as Christians. Not only has God called us into his family, baptizing us with his name, making us apart, setting us apart from the rest of the world. He has incorporated us, and he makes this amazing promise to us. I am with you always. He's united us to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit united to us in our whole lives. And because of that bond that is established between the Trinity, God cannot forsake us. We are surrounded in front of us, behind us, underneath us, above us, inside of us, and outside of us, everywhere. We belong to Jesus Christ and to each person of the Trinity. He cannot forsake us because if God were to forsake us, he would be forsaking himself. And it would undo the bond of God itself. You belong to him and Jesus Christ promises to you that I am with you always. But there is also a calling in this as we go into this world to evangelize. Now this phrase, I am with you always, shows up in an interesting place in Scripture, in the book of Joshua. And if you read the opening section of Joshua, chapter 1, you'll hear this echoed in there. And it's interesting what's happening there versus what we see happening in Matthew chapter 28. Joshua, Moses' servant who takes over as the leader of Israel, Israel, right as they're about to enter the promised land. 
Moses dies and Joshua is appointed as the new leader in Israel to bring the people of Israel into the promised land, to go conquer it for the people of God. And Joshua is commissioning them to go in, to wipe out all the nations who are evil in there and that, that make this God's holy dwelling place. And then Joshua gives them this promise as they're about to go in. No man shall be able to stand, but just Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. This is God speaking. God says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And it's fascinating what is happening in that passage when we compare it with what's happening here. Joshua is sending all these people to go into the land of Israel to conquer it for the people of God, exhorting them to be courageous and not be afraid because God is with them. But what is Jesus doing here? He's not sending them into the land of Israel, this geographic place on the planet, to go conquer it, wiping out the nations that are there, the Romans. No, he does something quite different. He now turns it to the outside. Go into all the world. Go into all the nations. Go out. He does not send his people to conquer the land of Israel with the sword. Now he puts that sword away because he has taken that sword in himself. And he gives his people a new weapon to go bring the nations in to God's kingdom. And he sends his disciples out from Jerusalem to all the nations as one who has already conquered. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus has already conquered. And now he gives his church, his people of God, a new instrument. No longer the sword of judgment, but the word of salvation. And we bring people into this kingdom, not with a sword threatening them, but with a word of gospel, a word of good news, a word of grace, that God is a God who saves sinners, that he has executed his judgment, not against the world, but against his son. Now that day is coming. The end of the age will come, and all who do not repent of their sins will be judged. But this gospel is what is to go out. God saying, go into all the nations. Make disciples of them, baptize them, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the strength that we do that in now is like what was given to the people of Israel, but it's far more. The strength we do that in now is that Jesus Christ is with us as we go into all the world and proclaim this gospel, that he is with us to the end of this age whether that is tomorrow or whether we die before that day comes, Jesus Christ is with us. So my hope for us today is to see that as we receive this name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we belong to the Lord and He has united Himself to us and now He sends us out into this world. Maybe we're not going to be evangelists. That is not very many people's calling in life, but you certainly can evangelize. You can tell people about Jesus. And the great promise that you have is regardless of how people respond to you, God is with you. He is with you always because he has shown you in your baptism. He has claimed you as his own. 
And that is your hope as you go out into this life. So remember what Jesus Christ has done for you, uniting you to himself, giving you this beautiful sign of baptism that you can continually look back to as a sign of God's covenant with you, his promise to you, and have hope as you go into this world and tell people about our Savior Jesus. Let's pray and ask God to bless the word that we have heard preached. Lord, we do thank you for this word that we have from Matthew chapter 28. Lord, we pray that you would apply it to our hearts and make it fruitful in us, that we would be those who would be bold and courageous, that we would not fear what this world throws at us, but we would see ourselves as those marked out by you in our baptism, and that we can give testimony and testify to the grace of God that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. Give us the courage and strength we need. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.